to the Colby Cast. Today we begin our week-long Colby convention. We'll be delving into the finer points of Colby's offerings and way of doing things. To get the convention started, Bonnie and I are joined by Dr. George Harn, Executive Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences and Associate Professor at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. Dr. Harn brings his knowledge and wisdom to us today to discuss classical education. Whether you're new to Colby Academy or have been with us for a while, I'm positive that you'll find Dr. Harn's insights on one of Colby's pillars to be interesting and helpful. We hope that you'll enjoy the show and will join us for the rest of this Colby Cast Convention. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. Kicking off another Colby Cast convention, a week of episodes designed to give those who are new to Colby and those who are curious about Catholic classical education with an Ignatian influence a better understanding of those concepts. We're going to hear some expert advice that might be helpful to those sorting through the decision to homeschool, and we'll delve into some of the finer points of Colby's offerings and way of doing things as another school year approaches. We hope this week of episodes will also be inspiring and helpful for those who have been around for a while or are well versed in these topics. If you haven't already subscribed to the Colby Cast in your favorite podcast app, now would be a good time to do that so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. Last year's Colby Cast convention episodes are numbers 47 through 50, which we will link in our show notes. Our guest today is Dr. George Harn, who gave an excellent keynote talk at our recent college fair. If you missed that, I'll post the link in the show notes. If you didn't miss it, you know his talk is worth hearing more than once. George currently serves as Fellow of the Corps and Associate Professor, as well as Executive Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. George, welcome to the ColbyCast. We're so glad to get to visit with you today. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for coming. George has a wealth of knowledge and experience in the field of Catholic classical education and musicology. What's your instrument, George, or instruments? I'm clarinet. I studied clarinet. Nice, nice. Okay. If listeners didn't catch George's keynote talk but are still thinking the name is familiar, that may be because they heard Colby Cast episode 16 with his daughter Sophia, a Colby alumna. Check the show notes for a link to that episode. Would you tell us about yourself and your Colby connection and how you found your way into the world of classical education? Sure, sure. Well, I'm, I'm a dad. Um, um, I have a, a long-suffering wife and, um, and five <laughs> children, um, and uh, ranging from 21 uh, to nine. And um, I'm also um, a big a proponent of liberal education, liberal learning, and uh, classical education. And uh, I've, I've been able to, to work in that area, both at the small uh, Catholic college uh, level, but also now at a, a larger Catholic university. And um, it's been a delight to serve in that in these capacities, because I, I see it as a service to the church um, and, and a service to um, Really, what, what we care about most in our culture, um, and uh, so I, I, this is uh, this transcends any particular institution. Um, so my my background is in is in music, um, like yours, and um, uh, but along the way, I I I just I discovered that there's a great deal more to be to be known outside of, of the world of music. Um, I had a humbling experience as an undergraduate. My 
my girlfriend um, at the time who became my wife later bought me a copy of Kierkegaard, um, one of his works uh, for my birthday. And on the first page reading it, it was a very humbling experience because there were quotations in Greek and Latin and all of these allusions to Socrates and other works. And I realized I actually don't, I'm, I'm making pretty good grades here as an undergraduate, but I actually have no idea what any of this means. <laughs> and so um, I was sharing that with one of my professors and he said, oh, there's this college you might be interested in, it's called St. John's College. Um, and um, though I was too far in my undergraduate to uh, um, go as an undergraduate, it was on my radar. This was before the internet. And so I wrote off and got a, a, a sheet, uh, uh, basically a, a really beautiful brochure that had all these glorious lists of books to, that could be read. And, um, I had the occasion, uh, the blessing to be able to go there um, and do a, a two-year a master's degree. Um, and I'd say that's really where it all began. And uh, as far as liberal education goes. So that was, that was my introduction. Um, one thing about St. John's is you read a lot of the same um, texts that you would find um, at say, um, a Catholic or a Christian great books college, but there's really no vantage point um, from which to evaluate the claims of the authors. So there's no place to really adjudicate between um, say what Thomas Hobbes has to say about a human person and what Aristotle says. And, and in fact, it's, 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 the program is created as rich as it is. It's created almost from a, what we used to call a wasp perspective, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, which tended to look down on the Catholic tradition. And I, I, if I recall correctly, we, we, we skipped over Thomas Aquinas pretty quickly and with some condescension. Mm -hmm. So the focus was on the Greeks um, and uh, Dante. We moved through Dante pretty quickly. Uh, there was an emphasis on the Greek heritage and, and obviously modernity, but, uh, but there was no way to really decide what was true. No one really ever asked that question. Um, we were very faithful to what does this text say and are we understanding it correctly? But we never really asked if it were true. And I found that the graduates from that kind of liberal education or that so-called classical education would have been, you end up at a place where you think you've seen everything and read everything and you kind of been exposed to everything, but you really don't embrace anything that's true. Hmm. Um, and so you become a kind of young Nietzschean at the age of 21, which is a very bad thing, I think. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I think classical education, particularly um, uh, classical education that is infused with the light of the Catholic faith, has a very different approach. A lot of the same texts, um, but there are deep, deep differences that I think are critical. So, okay, that would be very interesting to get more into, especially keeping in mind some of our listeners who are for whom this is a very new adventure that they're embarking upon. Uh, so. Would you, would you tell us some more about the value of classical education, especially for those who, who are new to this, to this world? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. And um, if my comments just um, that I just made should start off by saying it's clearly more than about just a set of texts. It's about more than just reading old dusty books, as great as those can be. Hmm. Reflecting on this a bit before our conversation, I was thinking, of, uh, just tr trying to rethink some of these things um, and I think two things come to mind um, immediately when one thinks about classical education and its value. One, the first of those is purpose. What are we trying to achieve? And then um, there's a kind of unity of purpose. Um, and then I think there's also um, equally critical and growing from this um, is the sense that there's a human person. There's a unity of the person um, that's, that's in play here. Um, there's an, an understandable and intelligible human being that's being educated that has a stable nature, lots of variety around the edges, um, lots of differences that are unique and interesting um, and important, but there's basically a, a relatively stable human, human being um, with certain predictable and intelligible attributes. 
And so you're not just educating this blank campus. You're actually educating someone who, who is very similar to people who were educated 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Um, and so you can create an educational approach that fits you know, the human person. Um, but that human person has a purpose. And so a, a remote, a very distant purpose, a high purpose, a transcendent purpose, but also lots of proximate uh, purposes and goals along the way. And so you have this sort of bifocal or dual dual approach where you're looking at this, this person, your student, or in some cases yourself, um, and you're looking at where you're trying to go, your, what, where, what you're trying to achieve. Um, and so classical education has a clear, a clear sense of, I think, those two things. And then the question is, how do you get someone with that nature um, that's been created in the image and likeness of God, who has an intellect and different activities in the mind, has a heart, um, has emotions, uh, has a body, not just as a tool, but as an integrated part of who you are, and then has these purposes, um, how do you get that person with that nature to fulfill those purposes? And that's where we get to things like texts and subjects and disciplines of learning and organized bodies of knowledge and sequences of learning, you know, sequences of knowledge. And it's clear when one looks at the Colby approach um, that, that the people behind the Colby approach, um, the Colby uh, genius, if you will, they understood these things. They understood that, that there was a human person and that that person had a purpose. So classical education so there are varieties um, within there. At the root, what should bind them all together is a clear understanding of what it means to be human. And that is going to necessarily entail what human flourishing looks like, both in this life and the next. What are we trying to achieve? Where are we trying to get our students? Um, so, you know, you could start by talking about the trivium and the quadrivium and these different disciplines, or you've got to read the classics and the ancient authors. And those are, those are all true attributes of classical education. But fundamentally, I mean, before you get there, what does it mean to be human and where are we trying to go? When you mention that's the St. John's education and kind of getting all of these things, where did that, that understanding or why, where did that thinking come about for you as, you as you kind of had this wide variety of knowledge, but not ordered, as you're saying, necessarily to the human person and presenting it in a way where you're leading them through to the truth. So what, what was it in your own journey that kind of, you know, the alarms going off that something's not quite right here or that, that there's more beyond just great books? Was there, was there some like, I guess, as they say, aha moment or something for you, or was it a, a, a search for truth? I was, I was mugged by a couple different sources. Um, and um, <laughs> so uh, I, at the time, at the same time, I was, I was, I was moving toward um, Catholicism. After I left uh, St. John's, um, I had already started my work as a music historian, my research in graduate school, and I went on to, to pursue a PhD. And I remember at a certain point buying um, sort of a little, a little notebook, a commonplace book, um, and beginning to write down when I came across things that, that I thought were true. Now that sounds kind of quaint, maybe in a little, um, but I, I wasn't Catholic at the time. Um, I had been raised in a, in a Christian home, um, but the form of Christianity in which I grew up didn't have a real robust or integrated um, larger vision of reality. I wasn't really living in, the, in what I would call the Catholic intellectual tradition. Um, I had a personal faith, but there wasn't a lot of uh, intellectual um, strength to it. And so when I would find things um, that I, I, I thought, okay, I can hold on to this. This seems to correspond to reality. I would write this down and begin to collect um, these things. 
And I began to work, I decided I was going to work on the Middle Ages as a graduate student. I was going to work on medieval music. And it was probably through the liturgy in some sense. I began to, um, I would practice my Latin every day by opening up an old graduale chant book and translating the antiphons hmm. from the day, the introit, the offertory, the communion, just to get my get my Latin going, to orient myself liturgically. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 orientation liturgically, which which is almost accidental how that all that worked, um, I began to realize that just as there's a, a larger liturgical tradition and coherence in the great tradition. I was Anglican at this point. Um, it began, to, and I'd also read Dante at St. John's. I will say this: Dante was sort of the proto-evangelium for me. Okay. You know, encountering this coherent spiritual intellectual reality, um, Dante did it. That's how I was introduced to Thomas Aquinas, and and so a deep, close reading of of, of Dante at St. John's was the was the was the opening. Um, but but that combined with the study of the liturgical year, I began to have develop a real hunger for these things, um, and then I began to look at some of these small Catholic colleges that were out there. And discovered that yes, they read these texts, the same texts that I had read at St. John's, but they they provide for their students. It's not it's not um, unavailable for critical reflection, but at least as a starting point, they provide their students with um, a perspective from which to evaluate the books they're reading. Um, it's not just a free for all. It happens to be ordered chronologically. Um, there is a place um, uh, to 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 begin. Um, and I, I, other, one other institution I'm thinking of, it, it's, um, you know, there, there was three years of theology. So while you're reading all of these other texts, you're also spending six semesters studying deeply um, the, the Catholic vision of reality. Um, and so those things are happening simultaneously. And, and you, again, you can bring critical inquiry to, to that. Um, that's not off limits for, for critical discussion, but it gives you a, a, a proposal, if you will. And nothing like that existed at St. John's. So I, I would say, and then, and then Newman, I got mugged by Newman as well along the way, you know, and his idea of a university. Um, yes. and if you're Anglican, one of the most dangerous things you can do is to read Newman. <laughs> they call them Newman zombies. These Anglicans that are wandering around that have, that have read Newman, but haven't, <laughs> haven't, haven't swam the Tiber yet. Um, and, uh, but I will say, you know, the, 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 at the time when I was in doing all this, the, the models of Thomas Aquinas College, of Magdalen College, uh, I don't think Wyoming Catholic has been founded yet. Um, these 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 small great books Catholic colleges really offered I think a countersign to what I had experienced at St. John's. You have these great books that you can read, but you can read them within a community of faith. It's oriented to the liturgical life and the larger intellectual tradition, um, and you believe in truth. I don't know if I, I, I this is a Colby podcast, so I think I can yeah. say that you actually yes. there is truth and yes. it is knowable <laughs> and it is knowable. So I, I think and that's that's fundamental to the even the the, the pagan. Um, approach to classical learning. There was this sense that if you climb out of the cave far enough, you can eventually encounter the good. And the moderns don't, the modern thinkers don't really believe that. Okay. For those of us who are new to this scene, it may be with great enthusiasm or some trepidation or a mixture of both, or those who are curious, who are kind of uh, similar to the Anglicans you just described reading Newman, who haven't quite, um, Cross the Tiber yet? Sure, Those who sure. are considering classical education, classical Catholic, classical home education, would you give us some of the ins and outs of it that are distinctive and that can help help people sort through those? Sure, sure. Well, I I, um, I think there are a couple of things um, that are fundamental, um, and 
that I think link all forms of classical education. And whether you're Catholic or whether you're not, I mean, I'm thinking of some, there have been some of the greatest teachers and advocates for liberal learning um, in the last 200 years were from that great tradition, but weren't necessarily Catholic. I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis, for example. And so uh, they, they drank deeply from that tradition and found their, their sustenance there. So just three things, three things I think that, that one can, I think, aspire to gain, realistically aspire to gain through a, a, a classical education at the secondary level, you know, primary and secondary level. Um, one is the beginnings of self-knowledge. And this goes back before, before the Catholic Church existed, this, this idea that, that um, the unexamined life is not worth living, that, that we should seek to know ourselves. Again, this is a classical antecedent that, that was taken up by Christianity. Um, and so classical education is going to do that. It, um, it, it'll help our students know themselves better. And by that, I don't mean some sort of self-creation, woke, you know, I'm going to make up who I am today. That can be different a week from, you know, now. Mm-hmm. But to really discover who we are as, as God-created individuals. Um, again, there, there's a lot of variety around the edges. I just look at my own five children and I can see, well, same family, same basic upbringing, but very different. But there's still a common human nature. Then, so in addition to that, classical education, in addition to helping us know ourselves, classical education and liberal learning helps us develop certain critical skills within the realm of, of language, um, of the realm of thought. And these are sometimes grouped in, in what we call the trivium and the quadrivium, or the threefold way and the fourfold way. The trivium tends to focus more on, on verbal skills, which, of course, go cut across every discipline, every job, every career. You've got to be able to think, get out to write, you've got to be able to communicate in an effective way. Um, and then at the quadrivial level, um, there, we, there, those are the more mathematical um, disciplines. And they range, um, in the classical sense, they range everything from, um, from basic number theory and arithmetic um, all the way to, to astronomy with music and geometry dropped in. But of course, we could expand these as well. But the basic idea is that classical education is giving you a grounding verbally and mathematically, what we used to call reading and writing and arithmetic. Right. Yes. So, I mean, you, it, you, you cover those basic disciplines, but you cover them in a very disciplined way so that the skills don't, the students don't just have a smattering of skills that they kind of pass over. It's, it's a deep formation in those, in those areas. Um, and then in addition to um, knowing oneself um, as a created human being, um, having some, some skills that are transferable across all disciplines. Um, you also have what I would call the beginnings of, of wisdom born from wonder. So classical education cultivates, I think, a desire to know, an openness to reality, uh, all of reality, um, every discipline, um, but in a coherent way. The, the medievals distinguished um, curiositas, um, or we call curiosity, from studiositas, or studiousness. And, you know, with Curious George, he's a cute little monkey. We read about him as a kid, you know. Um, curiosity, who, who would be opposed to curiosity, right? No one. Well, but the, the ancients actually understood that, and the medievals understood that, there is a disordered approach to knowledge that, that we often experience when we're browsing the internet, actually. The clickbait just takes us from one thing to the next, and before you know it, an hour has gone by, and what have you done besides waste an hour? Your brain is filled with garbage, right? Um, but there's also something called studiositas, which is a, a more disciplined approach, a well-ordered approach to learn. And through that approach, you, you lay the foundation for wisdom. So you get some wisdom, but you also have the humility to know it's just the beginning. I have my entire life to pursue wisdom to become wise. And I should say, I'll, I'll put in a word in here for poetry. By poetry, I mean literature, is just broadly conceived. So as important as the basic skills of the trivium are, and as important as, um, um, as the quadrivial skills are, 
poetry is incredibly important. And I mean that by just imaginative literature. So lyric poetry, comedy, uh, tragedy, um, epic poetry. The close reading and study of literature does something for the soul that those other disciplines doesn't do. The capacity for analogy, for unexpected correlations, uh, supposition, the idea of if this, then what about this? My daughter and I are currently reading As You Like It for fun in the evenings. And it's filled with these chains of ifs. One of my colleagues has pointed out to me recently, you know, if I were to love you, then what about this, right? And so these suppositions, these analogies, the playfulness of literature. Um, so all of this, the trivium, the quadrivium, uh, imaginative literature, it's all part of liberal gospel education, but then it's ordered to the highest wisdom, whether we call that philosophy, whether we call that theology, or whether we use both of those terms. There's a beginning and a middle and an end um, to classical education, but anybody can do this. Any child is capable of receiving this. I have a daughter with Down syndrome, and she can receive classical education, if not as much as, as other children, but she can receive it. And if we're patient enough and, we, and we're willing to ask questions, I think any parent can do this, um, and our children won't regret it. I love this because, um, especially when you're talking about the, the trivium and the quadrivium right, right away, with some of the things I've done, those those elements are so they're worthwhile in themselves and useful obviously but they're so formative is as well so i i give i i'm able to administer this ability test but they also test vocabulary and one of the reasons they do that is they found that with their studies that vocabulary was the clearest indicator of success in any field and you would think well, why is that and it was well i mean not only can you communicate well but having the right language, the ability to, to know the difference between this word and that word clarifies the thought, your thoughts become more clear. And you know, with math, I have never done anything in my life that helped me to understand logic better than going through Euclid's elements. Right. You know, going from the perfect, it's like the perfect science, going from principles and common notions to proofs and having everything just laid out, it was so, formative for me to see I'd, I'd never done anything like that before euclid where it's not just well he thinks that and they think this but you know we say a point is that which has no part and a line is breathless length and from these things we make we draw conclusions yeah, and i love i love the literature as well my 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 father-in-law who was a, again professor at thomas aquinas college he would tell all of his students coming into the college to study literature because literature as a young as a young person especially gives you this vast world of experiences and and beautiful things and and good literature that follows the natural law of course and and is is written well so his students would come in with this you know they're not ready to do the ethics at, at 18 really uh, but it gave them it better prepared them to do the ethics and and other things like that because of that richness of the of experience too yeah. In addition to beauty and understanding beautiful things too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm glad you mentioned Euclid. I, um, in one of my, my previous roles, I remember addressing, a, I think I was a new faculty member and I was addressing a, some trustees and they asked me what I thought the most important course was in our highly integrated curriculum. And they expected me to say theology. And I said Euclid. And uh, this would have been in the early mm -hmm. 2000s. And, and I, you know, they, they were surprised. And I, I said, well, it's because most of our students, even though a lot of our students are, are very faithful people, they come in having imbibed a lot of skepticism about the possibility of knowing. 
And um, I think Euclid, in addition, in addition to the discipline um, and the formation, just the pure formation it receives, it, it does teach you that you can know things, right? And that you, it is possible what, what, an, what a structured, ordered body of knowledge looks like. Um, and Newman speaks about this in, in his idea, right, of the university. He was a big fan of Euclid as well. He was also a big fan of, of taking um, a discipline and going very deep into it. Um, and so that, that teaches you the depths of possibility within a realm of knowledge. And it also helps inculcate humility because you begin to appreciate what it really means to be an expert in something. And so um, I've always uh, encouraged people to, you know, there in many cases, you can't, you can't go deep with everything. But if maybe a couple of disciplines, maybe it's Latin or maybe it's, maybe it's Euclid, go deep. And, and let's just really plumb the depths of what's possible in this, in this, in this given discipline. And, and it, it does breed humility, I think, in students to realize, oh, you know, it's, it's, you know, being an expert in a field means something different from having read the book two or three times. Um, there's actually, and, and it's, it's really good, I think, to have those. In, and it, again, the discipline that, it, that it, it brings about. Yes, yes. I remember those first couple of propositions in Euclid just being hard. I mean, I've spent hours kind of wrangling over these fairly simple propositions. Now I can still probably do them off the top of my head, but by the time you get through Euclid and then it's like, you're, you're, you've developed these things in your mind. That's just go back to the beginning. Now is easy or running through some of those logic. It's just, it's, yeah, I, I love, right. I love Euclid. <laughs> yeah. I have a couple of thoughts have come to mind as you all have been talking. I love listening to you all converse about this. And I uh, have far less depth of knowledge in this area than you guys both. So I've, it, I'm so privileged to be able to be a part of the conversation and just hear you all conversing. I, I was thinking just now how this is ordered in a, in a disciplined way, how this discipline leaves the door open for freedom, which right. goes back to the idea of the liberal arts, the liberal in referring to the freedom. Um, and then the second thought would be, Going back to your comment about the the sense of wonder that is cultivated through this approach to education that leaves one with the idea that there's more to learn and I and I can learn it. It's not okay. I'm done with this. I'm done with this course of study and I've learned all there is on this and that's that. And yeah, kind of limiting oneself in that way. So I don't know where those all intersect, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you said we did about freedom. I, I think um, the analogy, you know, there's a Couple different approaches to this. There, um, uh, there was a famous Dominican theologian, Cervantes um, Pinkers, who, who wrote a, a great book on sources of Christian ethics. Um, and toward the end of that book, he talks about the sort of the loss of the, the virtue ethics, um, that that approach to ethical thought in the Christian tradition. Um, and he talks, he makes the distinction near the end um, between freedom from and freedom for. And another Catholic author. George Weigel took this up and developed a little essay on it, you know, and he, he sort of says freedom for would be the Thomas Aquinas approach, freedom from would be the William of Ockham approach, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think classical education helps us to learn freedom for, it, it liberates us for something. Um, and one of the examples that, that can be used is, is a, you know, a child simply banging on a piano. There's, you know, the piano was made for, you know, and as a pianist, you know this, right? I mean, it, this is, it was made for a certain kind of, of behavior in relation to it. But that behavior requires training and formation. Um, and there's nothing quite like the freedom of sitting down and playing Scarlatti or Brahms um, at the piano uh, from memory. But that took an enormous amount of discipline um, to get to that point. And that's very different from 
just banging at the piano. And so classical education in many ways is for the whole human person what you know, the study of piano is for a pianist. Um, you achieve a level of, of freedom to, to, just as the pianist becomes a pianist, in a sense, we are human, but we become more fully and actually human through this kind of education. Um, and we can become, I think a saint um, is the virtuosic human being, right? They, they've, they've, they've become virtuosos um, at what it means to be human. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's, and, and then the wonder, I think Joseph Pieper is very, very good on this as, as, as the need to cultivate wonder as a precondition to rediscover it. Because we usually have it, but it's, it's sort of been stamped out or you know pushed down within us. Because how many times can you hear your child ask why before you say, stop, I don't want it anymore. You know, but, but, but that desire is still there to know why. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think classical education does a great job of giving us permission to ask those questions. Do you find it to be a good antidote to that skepticism you were talking about? Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, it's, 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 it's um, I wish I had had a classical education. So um, I had to come to it late in life and it was, not in the right order, but um, but I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for it. I was thinking when you were describing that to us, how inspiring that is to me, who who also is is new to this area as well, and just how encouraging that is that I can, I can keep working on this and, and grow in this area. Yep. <laughs> so that's very inspirational. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed teaching. Trying to, I had to teach my, uh, uh, trying to teach my daughter logic, mm-hmm. and um, and so here I was. I had the book. She had the book. I had a workbook. She had a workbook, and I was basically trying to stay one lesson ahead. Yeah. Um, but I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I did that. And, uh, and there have been a lot of other areas in that, in that, that I've done that with. And, and that's in a way, you know, um, that's, I think I'm ready for it now because I see the need for it. And so I, I may be, I may be not quite as quick as my daughter and, and you know, mentally as, as these days, but, but I'm certainly um, I'm receptive and um, I'm ready to, to engage with these topics. So I think, I think for the parents who, if they approach it as a kind of uh, mutual education, um, and it's okay. I mean, there, there are hundreds of thousands of parents around the world who've committed themselves to educating their children classically who are doing exactly the same thing. They're, they're going over the first conjugation of Latin, right? They're going over you know, the basic acts of the intellect uh, and logic. It's, 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 it's a wonderful thing. We're not alone in when we, when we do this. What a great example for your children, too, to be going through with them because, I mean, just just by that act, not, not only does it give you conversations that you, wonderful, rich conversations that you get to have with a child, but it's, you're helping to teach them as well that, that learning isn't something that goes up through college and stops, but it is that lifelong perfection of our, of trying to make us better, better humans, better, as you were saying. So that, that's, I think that's a great thing to do, actually. Yeah. Well, well, better late than never, I think. So. <laughs> well, what do you see, how do you envision the future of classical education? I think the future is very bright. I think there's going to be a uh, necessarily an ongoing renewal and rediscovery. Um, I think in, in some ways, um, when classical education started, um, and I, I don't I'm not going to claim to, to know exactly when the revival began, but I remember back in the, in the 90s hearing about you know the, the emergence of classical schools and, the, and classical programs um there there was um often a sense that we're discovering this thing we're rediscovering this thing and here's how you do it and there's only one way to do it and 
people's opinions or interpretations kind of become dogma in that situation. Um, when I think what we're, what we're, what we're, where we are now, I think is um, there's a sense in which there's a framework, you know, kind of going back to where, what we talked about earlier, you know, there's a recognition that there's a human nature that's not going to change fundamentally uh, that has certain, that nature has certain capacities and desires and interests and is, you know, wired in a certain way. And there are certain purposes we're trying to achieve. Um, and we have found that there's an intellectual tradition that we can draw from of these great texts and these disciplines. And there's even a kind of ordering that we can, we can, we can follow that's appropriate to age um, and, uh, and you know, readiness. Um, but within that frame, there's extraordinary possibility for, for, uh, for development. And, uh, you know, I think that what we've been through in the last you know, few decades and a few years, it feels like decades, Few years with COVID um, and uh, and the uh, even more recently, you know, it's, uh, I mean, things we're hearing about that are being done in schools. Um, I think it's just a matter of, of 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 finding the people who have the resources to support liberal learning more broadly, and then taking what we already have, developing it, and making it more broadly known. Um, this is not a niche education. This is an education for everyone, um, and uh, I don't think it's going to slow down. I will I will say this also. I I do think um, just there is also a need to continue this beyond the, the, the primary and secondary levels. Um, I, in, my, in my roles, I've, I've encountered this a number of times where parents um, who've been very faithful in educating their kids um, in, 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 you know, in classical education, they think that because they did it simply as, you know, as elementary school kids, middle school kids, and, and seniors in high, school, in, in high school, that they're done, that they've gotten what they need. But I can tell you as someone who has read the Divine Comedy, you know, in high school, who read it in, in college and has read it and has also read it um, in graduate school and beyond, the capacity to engage with that truth and, and the beauty of that work changes over time. Reading these works as a young person is super important, but going back to them and studying them again is also really important. So whatever happens in, um, at, the, at the college or university level, there's a need to focus often, you know, perhaps study engineering, um, do, uh, you, know, you know, nursing or something. If, if the student can find a way to continue to, to, re to receive that classical formation, maybe it's in a core curriculum, um, continue because it, and it should be a lifelong as well. So um, I do see classical education is continuing on throughout life. Um, so I think, I think that's, is, and, and in that sense, that's, that's, how, that's how the classical education is continue to grow and flourish because kids are gonna see their parents continuing on as adults and see their grandparents continuing on as adults. And it's going to be this, this multi-generational project. It never really, it doesn't end when you walk across and receive your diploma. Classical education is a lifetime of education. How much do you see some of the societal sort of influences, like just the sheer amount of noise that we have in our world today, or, you know, just a lot of, for people who haven't maybe had the right formation and there, there being this moral sort of relativism, those, those seem like dangers to me, but are there things like that that are just impediments, even for somebody who's trying to start out with a liberal education, a classical education? Are there things that, that in your experience as a teacher that you have to kind of get, get, get rid of, you have to cut or you have to, the environment or things that are kind of prerequisites for being able to pursue that education? Yeah, I, I those are great questions. Um, I'm thinking here of Joseph Keeper and, and um, some of the things that he has said about the conditions um, for, for, you know, 
being able to engage in, in a, a more fully human life. Um, his famous book is Leisure, the Basis of Culture. There's a, a companion, there's a companion volume called Happiness and Contemplation, which I think is actually a more straightforward um, articulation of that. And there's a wonderful essay um, called Work, Spare Time and Leisure, which really boils down Leisure, the Basis of Culture into about four pages. Um, and he talks in there about, and it's, it's in a book, I think called Only the Lever Sings, which was published or published by Ignatius Press, um, very small book. But he talks in there about, about the need to have worship um, at the foundation, um, the ability to celebrate a feast. And he explains what he means by that. You know, to be able, you have to, you have to have the capacity to celebrate a feast. And, and, um, and that says something about your relationship to um, creation and the larger reality. Can we say along with God, it is good? You know, these are conditions that have to be uh, in place. Um, the, the ability to worship, um, the ability to, to celebrate um, the goodness of reality and the gifts we receive, a kind of gratitude. Um, and he, it's in his writings, but he, they weren't facing the same challenges today. Um, but I, I think the dangers of, of distraction are, are really important. I mean, obviously, if the distinction between studiositas and curiositas existed, um, I mean, they, they were there. I mean, this, this tendency to just to pursue knowledge in a disordered way, um, I think it's, it's just gone on steroids um, with, with the current technology and the social media um, opportunities. You know, I, I have a, I, I don't even have a smartphone. My, my kids make fun of me. My, my wife has one, but, you know, um, I have a dumb phone. Right. And that's just an attempt to, I have one, so you can reach me in emergency. I can get texts, but um, I, I'm just trying to minimize the noise um, and the distraction because otherwise I can't think. I can't really, I can't engage in any sustained activity. Um, and people are going to find different ways to, to do that. We're going to have to find a way to put limits on what our technology will enable us to do. Otherwise we will just, it'll, it'll become, you know, it will, it will just, it'll be curiositas all the time. Right. Um, and so I, we do need periods of, of, of time in which we can engage in sustained reading, um, sustained thinking, sustained conversation um, without people looking at their phones. My, uh, my two oldest children have, I guess they call them gab phones. This is not a promotion, but, they're, but they're, they, have the, they have these phones that they can, they can use um, to call people. And they, they even look like smartphones, but they don't have all the bells and whistles, you know, um, my daughter's in Poland right now, and, and she had to get a Polish phone. She went into a, a phone shop there, and they were trying to sell her a smartphone. She's like, no, I, I just want something simpler. And he's, I think the salesman says, so you just need a grandparent's phone, like with the big numbers. And she said, yeah, I'll take that, right? right? So, you know, how many 21-year-olds will actually uh, – uh, and that's a plug for my daughter, Sophia, who did the podcast with Jordan Almanzar yeah. previously yeah. on this series. But, but that, she, she, she understands that, that you got to keep the noise at a certain level if you're going to sustain a human life. So in addition to cultivating wonder, in addition to, you know, having time for prayer and worship and being able to affirm the goodness of reality and celebrating a feast with friends, with good conversation, we've got to find a way to push back against the noise and the distraction. So, I, you know, and I confess, I'm not very good at that. I'm still learning. But I do think there's a generational divide coming. I think where this experiment we're performing on our kids with all these devices and all these platforms, at a certain point, it's, it's going to, we're either going to become total slaves to it or we're gonna we're gonna rebel against. It. So I hope that, I hope that didn't sound too luddite, but that that's sort no. of my you know I, no. I, I no. the technologies the technology can be used in a very good way, um, but I think we've got to we've got to find time. And I think Colby does a great job of you know it uses the technology for a higher purpose, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean Colby would really be impossible without without the wise use of technology. Um, 
Yeah. But I, I there's there's got to be an awareness of, of what the unwise use of technology looks like too. I think I I hear that more than you might think about folks who have made the deliberate decision to use the technology in a more limited way than all the all that's available to them. So yeah, and it's it's inspirational and really thought provoking as, and I think it ties right into the formation that we are facilitating in our children in their in their classical studies that they are able to recognize that and make make those decisions from the freedom that has been cultivated by that discipline. Sure. Sure. And I, I will say this is one of the things that Aristotle is good at helping us with. If we do read the ethics, Stephen remarked earlier about reading the ethics and how reading literature can help you prepare, prepare you to read the ethics. Um, when you read the ethics and he talks about slavery, that's an occasion to ask, am I, am I a slave? Have I made myself a slave to things? Have I allowed myself to slip into slavery? What am I a slave to? And, you know, um, and I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, we can become slaves to our technology, our tools. Yeah. And so even someone as old as Aristotle can help us reflect. This would be an example of how classical education is eternally relevant, mm -hmm. right? The principles of that education can help us reflect on contemporary problems. Mm. Yeah. So again, just wonderful things. I was just thinking of that separation, that freedom going back to when you bring in the ethics and you're bringing in the quiet, you're bringing in the discipline and virtue. Uh, you know, you think about that space that it gives you to act in a rational fashion where if my passions are out of control if they're not if i haven't quieted myself all of those i have no i have very small room then to act at times as a human i tend to act you know something makes you angry somebody cuts you off in traffic or whatever all of these things the quiet the it seems to me that gives you the space then to and the freedom can be fully human and and or to think about things you know so that's the worst example but also then it gives you the freedom to not to to focus on some of these great things too yeah i, th I think you're right in that space that space is critical right and uh, but i think classical education really can help you develop that kind of perspective because what other form of education asks these questions what does it mean to be human you know what does it mean to live a human life i'm thinking of my son um who is very wise for his years. Um, you know, he's, he's entering adulthood right now. My daughter's a little bit further along. You know, he's asking these questions. I mean, he's come, he came of age in the summer of 2020. That was his political awakening. You know, the streets were, on, were burning in America. Um, and, you know, we had all of this, these things going on. It was, it was, it was crazy. Um, but he, he's reflecting in a deep way about what does it mean to be a young man um, and, and to be a human person who will make a difference in the world and, you know, he's interested in, he's, he's getting a liberal education as, a, as, a, as an undergraduate, but I think he's going he's gonna to probably go into, into some sort of hands-on, you know, discipline um, in postgraduate life. He wants, to, he wants to do things with his hands. Um, so he's got this incredible um, intelligence and intellectual formation, but he's going to put it to work in an active life. Interestingly, if you go back to the Middle Ages, and you, talk, you look at someone like you of St. Victor, you know, we talked about the trivium and the quadrivium. He had the trivium, the threefold verbal arts, the fourfold mathematical arts, but then he had this whole list of, of mechanical arts, right, that he recognized. And those things weren't being done at the university per se, but they were legitimate disciplines. And for him, they were, you know, they were armor making, right, <laughs> you know, or other, other very practical hands-on things. We would call it engineering or, or plumbing or, you know, maybe cybersecurity, right? We would have these, we would have these practical arts. But, but there was a recognition that, that you began with, a liberal, with liberal arts, with classical education, and you've built up to those. Um, so it's been interesting yeah, as a father just to see my, my own kids as they, 
because they're also different. But as they they've been, they basically received a classical education, a liberal education, but how they integrate it into their, into their lives, and then the decisions they make. Because as you said, we at some point you make it your own, and you realize I've got to have space if I'm going to live a human life. Um, if I'm going to live a virtuous life. You can think read about virtue till you till you know till the cows come home. How do you become virtuous? That was, again, Aristotle's question. You're not going to become virtuous by reading about it. Mm-hmm. Thank God for Colby. So when Colby's ready to launch its, its, its curriculum for middle-aged people, let me know. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> I probably can't be a full-time student. I have a day job. But um, I think uh, you, know, you, you do come to a – I run a reading group for um, some uh, business executives in D.C. and um, in New York, and we call ourselves the Hedgehog Club. And they're basically these six or seven guys. Um, we've been going now for about four years. We started with Plato and we're doing Dante now. Um, and they just, they're ready. They've been aged. They're ready to learn these things. Um, and they have the life experience. And so, um, so there, there's a, there's a market there for Colby. I'm not sure how to, how to get to it, but uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, there are a lot of us out there that wish we'd had this education our kids are getting. Yeah. I, well, you know, speaking to the, the discipline and the, um, trying to decide among the various things to study. I find that true with myself, with my, I have four children and they're each in a different, where in different places, like I want to be studying all the things like what, what, do, how do I, how do I order what I'm reading first and when, and, and all those things that I'm learning along with them and helpful to them and all those things. And I can see that yeah, <laughs> playing into yeah. this situation. Yeah. 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 Wow. All right. Well, we are getting close on, on the time we asked of you. It's been such a wonderful conversation. So, just a few final thoughts here as we're wrapping up. Um, Colby has a dual enrollment partnership with the University of St. Thomas. Do you have any words you want to say about that here briefly and, and then any information you want to direct us to? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. So, um, you know, we're at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. So if you just type it into your favorite browser, you go to the University of St. Thomas in Houston, it'll come up and you can read all about the university there. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful core. Um, rooted in, in classical education, and you can receive college credit for those those courses. Um, but then we also have more discipline-specific courses that you're not going to find in, in most most situations um, that are more focused on on the disciplines. So um, by contacting Colby directly, you can get a list of that, those courses. We send that or, that or um, excuse me that course list every every year um, of what courses are going to be available. We find that the Colby students do very very well in our courses, and um, and so it, it's always a great joy to have them. Uh, but it is a chance to, to take some take some courses and, and get some things under your belt, even if you're going to go to a, a college or university where you may not necessarily transfer them in to replace courses. Just having that experience mm-hmm. of of a, of a college level, university level course, and our our faculty love love Colby students too. So mm-hmm. they're always happy to work with the students and the families. Yeah, I think this is a partnership that's that's really made uh, it's it's ideal um, because the university does a lot in in online education as well for students who can't. Um, come to Houston. And of course, that's, that's, that's part of Colby's DNA, you know, extending classical education nationally. So um, we have a great partnership and, um, I, and the Colby folks have all of the details of the individual courses. Um, but again, we're, we're launching our new core this fall, um, which is deep in the Catholic intellectual tradition. It's rooted in the trivium and the quadrivium. It's got a fine arts course. I mean, it's got all these things you would want at a university and then be able to go on and study engineering after that. Um, and so I think it's wonderful that we're able to make these available to, to the Colby students. Indeed, that sounds beautiful. Yes, we'll include some information in our show notes about that. University of St. Thomas has its own podcast, which we will link to as well. 
along with the links to Sophia's episode and last year's convention episodes. <laughs> Are there any final thoughts or things we didn't get to today that you'd like to throw in here as we're wrapping up our conversation? Oh, no. Yeah, I think this has been great. I, I'm glad you mentioned the podcast. So I have a lot of fun with this. Um, it's mm-hmm. uh, The podcast I'm, I'm thinking of is called Spelunking with Plato. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah. that's, uh, we interview uh, USD faculty, but also um, other friends of the university. And that really, those conversations are devoted to the question of what is liberal education? Okay. And so there's enormous overlap with what Colby's doing. So um, those are a lot of fun, uh, fun to do. And it would be great to, we're still making new, new episodes. So, um, and so I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, please put all this in the show notes because sure, I, I will. Um, they're, uh, it's impossible to, <laughs> to give all the details, but yeah, um, I do, I do. I just, I would, I would encourage all the, all the families who are educating their kids through Colby to not give up. Um, there are challenges, there are bumps, there are roadblocks, but uh, this is one of the greatest, absolutely one of the greatest gifts um, that can be given to our, our children is this education. So. Well, thank you for this dose of inspiration and all the gifts you've given us in this conversation. We sure appreciate it and have enjoyed our time talking with you, Dr. George Harn. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. God bless you. Thank you, too. Subscribe to the ColbyCast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.